My darlings, it's so great to be back with you. Last weekend, we wrapped up our national tour of 30-something. It only took two and a half years to bring our beautiful little show to audiences around Australia. Thank you, COVID. But we did it, and now I am back. This week's episode of The Cafeteria is a very special one. A Bible, if you will. Kids, take notes. This is a thrilling insight into the history of Australian showbiz from a man in the trenches. My guest this week has done, seen and most likely felt it all. You've seen and heard him on your telly in The Big Geek, The Gillies Report and Good News Week. For the last 22 years, he has titillated you in the Wharf Review. He is one of Australia's most revered artists, writers, composers and satirists. He is the most hilarious, passionate and generous soul in the industry. He is also my co-star. Would you please welcome to the cafeteria, the maestro of mischief, Mr. Philip Scott. Welcome, Philip Scott. This is an honour to be speaking to you and... Gosh, what a career you have had. Mm. Well, it's over now, but yes. Well, a, it's, a, it's bloody not over. We've still got two shows to go this weekend. To, yeah, and then yeah. you've got one more tour with the Wharf Review. And then you will be taking your final bow in approximately April or May 2023. Well, from the review, certainly, yeah. We'll see what else comes along. I want to keep writing. A four and a half decade career. You have worked with everyone, national and international stars. You have written for some of the biggest television successes in Australia. And you're a little boy from Balgala. Uh, That's true. From the Northern Beaches. Yes, we lived up on a hill above Clontarf Beach and it was a dirt road in those days. Wow. Imagine in Balgala. You have a brother named Craig, younger brother. Yes, Craig. Is a bass player, jazz bass player, and for the last, well, you know, 15 years, something like, might be more than that, might be 20, he was the head of the jazz course at the Conservatorium, the New South Wales Crematorium of Music. <laughs> and he's um, he's just recently uh, retired from that job, but he still, I think, lectures there. And most of the young musicians, in fact, two of the ones we've worked with, and three of them, in fact, if you include Sano, were taught by Craig. He's really our band pimp, isn't he? You're right. We just asked Craig, you know. I mean, of course, all the usual musos say, oh, I'm working, I'm busy. So we ring him up and say, who just came out of the conservatorium? You know, some fabulous, enthusiastic young person who'll work cheap. <laughs> Who's the fresh meat? Yeah. Send and them he, our way. He finds them. But you weren't always a fan of your brother. It was a little bit of a shock when a four-year-old Philip discovered he was about to become a big brother. What did that feel like? Uh, well, I was the first... Uh, of the entire generation of the family. I'm the oldest. And uh, so I had four years of of, um, mum and dad to myself. Uh, It was a very matriarchal family. Mm -hmm. All the women, and there are a lot of women in the family, although I had no sisters, but all the women are very, very strong. My grandmother on my mum's side was widowed because her husband died in a Changi um, prison camp in World War II working on the Burmese Railway. Um, and he was he was from a rich family, but he had a lot of siblings. I had a lot of aunts, Auntie B, Auntie Mole, Auntie Marge, Auntie Sis, Auntie Snow, and Auntie Val were his <laughs> sisters. Almost in alphabetical order yeah, too. Yeah, very thank you well very done. Much. And I mean, they're all really peculiar. <laughs> and um, that doesn't shock me at all. A couple of them married, but most of them didn't, and they just lived in private hotels until all the money had run out. And so I. <laughs> How long I, did that take? Their whole lives, but <laughs> just when I was about ready to, you know, cop some of it, it, <laughs> it wasn't all gone. there. <laughs> None Thanks very was much to for be seasoned. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I can't say I came from a rich background. Um, but, uh, yeah, my grandmother, so she, um, she had some properties around the place and she managed those and lived off the rent and she was formidable. And she paid for all my piano lessons and everything. I was just a daughter, my nana. When did you start learning piano? Uh, about five or six, I think. And I had a, a, a piano teacher named Mrs. Leela Chalmers who worked in Manly and she was a pupil of a rub. 
Rubenstein, dear. She used to speak like that. Dear. Dear. Yes. The fees are due. That's all I remember her saying constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and she had the most terrible telephone style, you know, because if you rang her up, she'd say, hello. But then when she was free, she'd say, goodbye, and slam the phone down. <laughs> She was done with you. Yeah, so she was lovely when she didn't know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> but she was pretty good and um, she um, reckoned I had a natural technique so she didn't really teach me t- much technique about touch and so on. Which um, That just came naturally. Well, apparently. My mother's sister, my Auntie Belle, uh, who was slightly younger than my mum, she was the good pianist out of those two. Mm. And she used to sit me on her knee at the piano and put my little fat chubby hands on top of hers while she played something. Um, and so I, I, you know, very early I got the feeling of what it was like to just sit there and have my hands at the keyboard. Mm. And so it was, none of that was ever scary. And apparently back in the day, one of my grandmother's cousins, my Auntie Ettie, who was famous for throwing herself out of a moving car the first time she ever got in a car because she was so terrified. <laughs> Etty had, she was on the fly. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway, she was a piano player for silent movies accompanying them in the really? 20s. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you're a, you're a little boy growing up in Balgala in Sydney in the 50s? 50s, yes, and 60s. <laughs> Let's get to the 60s. I didn't tell you about my dad's family. They were quite different. They weren't from a sort of snobby... Tell me about your dad's family. Oh, well, all right, I will. They were, they were different from mum's family. Mum's family, part of mum's family anyway, were quite wealthy. But my dad's parents were from the country. They were from Merriwa and farming people, but they had come to Sydney. And so they were much more down to earth than my paternal grandmother. Another, another you know, formidable, tough woman. Mm. And my grandfather was the quietest man on earth. I look a bit like him. He was completely bald, you know, billiard ball head. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, he worked for Shell and Coca-Cola. Wow. Which are sort of, you know, interchangeable. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh, They both keep you going. (laughs) They do. And when he got old, he was put in an old age home um, because uh, my grandmother – who was, you know, sharp as a tack, mm. had to have a hip replacement or something like that. So she had to leave the house mm. and go into hospital for a while. And she'd done everything, including give him his meds. He didn't know what to do. Mm. And after a few days, my father went to visit him and he opened the door and didn't know who it was and was holding an axe. Oh, my goodness. And so they put him in a, a home because of that, which he ran away from naked. <laughs> Wow. Yep. Quite colourful. I know. Pretty <laughs> Quite good. dramatic. Very dramatic moment. It's all starting to make sense now, Phil Scott. It's starting to come together, <laughs> yes. I personify all these people. Yeah. You do. Now, you never officially trained in acting for the stage or screen or musical performance. You did do a Bachelor of Arts with a Music Honours at Sydney University in 1974. But where did you learn to do what you do now? Well, I, I always wanted to act as a kid. That's why I happened to be a piano player and I love music and I love doing that. But what I f- really wanted to do was be a funny actor who made people laugh. That's right. what I wanted to do. Right. And um, my father, who started off in the Commonwealth Bank, went into theatre. He was asked to go to the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust that ran the opera company and the ballet company and um, Peter Scrivener's Tin Tookie's Puppet Company. <laughs> and oh, Great name. Uh, yes, and put shows on, put plays on as well. And all of a sudden he was in the middle of all that. So when I was in my teens, he'd moved on to uh, J.C. Williamson's, which was a company that did all the musicals in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, you know all the Broadway shows. And I used to be able to nick off school on Wednesday, which was sports afternoon, which bored me to death, <laughs> and go and see Promises, Promises or whatever show happened to be on and and go backstage and meet the people who are in it, you know. So I got to know what the people were like who worked in show business and what it was like to be backstage. So when I started working, that was all familiar, which mm. was, you know, it's a good thing because you've got some idea 
and of, they're just of people, what this world is like. And the interesting thing is you realise they're just, you know, they're people who are doing a job, even though they're talented and, and fabulous and lovely. They're just doing a job like other people do, mm. really. It happens mm. to be a better job in my opinion, <laughs> but yeah. And did you just naturally gravitate towards that world? Did you feel as though that's where you belonged? Uh, yes, I just gravitated to it straight away. And the first show I can remember seeing was on my eighth birthday. Wow. And that was uh, Once Upon a Mattress with <laughs> Sheila Bradley. Who else was in it? Um, um, Robert Gard, who I got to know later. And I got to know some of these people later on, you know. How special. She, I think Sheila's still around too. She lives up the Gold Coast or something. <laughs> but I couldn't understand why they were different people from the ones I had learnt it off, mm-hmm. off the record, mm-hmm. because I didn't know that Broadway was in another country, you know. Of course. And uh, they, I went to a matinee and they left out the love duet in Act Two for some reason. And I was terribly upset and I sang it all the way home in the car. <laughs> I said, no, 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 it's this one. Why didn't they do this one? <laughs> you were a purist at eight, Phil Scott. Oh, I was, yeah. <laughs> that soon went out the window. <laughs> so as an eight-year-old sitting there experiencing it for the first time, did it spark something within you? Is that sort of when you knew that that was something you would like to do? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I loved it very much. I sometimes tell this story that I, I had a couple of friends at school who were twins and their mother took a group of us to see a pantomime which was on at the Independent Theatre in North Sydney. And at the end of this panto, the actors came on stage and one of them stepped forward and said, any of you kids who want to come up on stage and say hello to us and have a look around, oh. come and do it. And the twins' mother said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. Come on. And I thought... What? Crazy. Oh, I want to, I want to, I want to. Anyway, we went outside the theatre and she said, no, we're coming on. We're going back to, uh, you know, have something to eat. And I immediately, in typical Phil Scott fashion, <laughs> ran into a milk bar next door and bought myself an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and she was cranky with me, but I said, I just had to have this. But I thought, you know what, I spent the rest of the next 10 years trying to get, get up on that stage because I couldn't that day. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. What was it like going to university in the 70s studying a Bachelor of Arts? Oh, well, okay. Um, Sydney University in the, like from 1971 to 74, I was there, so four years, uh, was the most fantastic place Mm. because there were um, demonstrations, they were called then, you know, protests about the Vietnam War to begin with. And uh, it was just very, very um, engaged with issues and very exciting and I hadn't seen anything like it. Mm. Uh, And also um, the music class was uh, quite interesting and Peter Sculthorpe, who was the leading composer, Australian composer really of the 20th century, he worked there and he was – he took us on, you know, he lectured us and – we did tutorials with him and various other people. Lovely Winsome Evans, who used to run the old music classes about medieval music and all that. She was uh, – they were all characters. Yeah. And we had a um, Dutch lecturer named Dr. Wilhelm Adrians, who was as strict as – and he taught us 12-tone music, which, you know, died out within five years because no one likes it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I remember we had this, like, really – technical lesson about that and it was just it was like I thought why are I doing you know high maths what am I doing this for Um, (laughs) isn't it the same thing always well yes you work it out with a slide rule that's why it's just so hummable (laughs) and um and then Peter Sculthorpe came in after that to take the next and he said oh you've had Wilhelm have you he said uh, well look I was going to talk about so and so but I let me – I'll just give you a bit of goss. So I remember when I was at uh, Oxford University, John Cage, the American composer, was there and he used to sleep naked on a slab of marble, uh, blah, blah, blah. And it was <laughs> – <laughs> and he said, oh, Witold Lutoslawski, the Polish composer, um, was as horrible in person as his musical is beautiful to listen to. <laughs> All this stuff – like it was yesterday, I can remember him saying it. He just thought, I'm going to make this interesting for these kids again. You well, know? thank God. He was great. I really liked Peter. And it turned out, I didn't know at the time, because he wrote um, a, he wrote the first music in the classical area that really depicted Australia. He wrote a series called Sun Music, and it just sounds like you're out in the outback and it's mm-hmm. as hot as anything. Mm-hmm. Um 
And, of course, later on in his career, he got William Barton, the fabulous dididgeridoo player, and mm. wrote stuff for him, wrote string quartets and put the didgeridoo into them oh, and stuff magic. because he was really interested in Indigenous music too. Mm. It was all part of what he wanted to do to make an Australian, very Australian sound. sound. Yeah, the cohesion between yeah. and European and Indigenous. Yeah, and though he, he died about 2009, I think, um, but uh, – Although some people have said, oh, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't his place to do that, blah, 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 he was white and so on, um, they don't understand. He loved it. Mm. He loved it and he wanted to honour it, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but uh, also I found out when I read a book about him long after I'd known him that he'd also worked in review at the Phillips Street Theatre and played piano for Ruth Cracknell and <gasps> Reg Livermore and people like that back really? in the 50s for a job for a while. For the same people I worked for at the Manly Music Loft, um, a man named Bill Orr and his partner Eric Duckworth. How extraordinary. Lots of Duckworth, we used to say, because <laughs> he did the money. <laughs> Well, so so university was an exhilarating time, and you studied a Bachelor of Arts, which focused more on writing and reviewing music rather than performing and stagecraft, yeah. etc. It was nothing to do with performing, although I had to do a, a, a like a keyboard course, which you know was easy, mm-hmm. but um, uh, because it was for everybody, so mm. there were people who couldn't play piano at all who did it, and uh, it was about uh, the history of music and various different um, ethnic musics and so on. It was that kind of thing. I played in a Balinese gamelan orchestra there for a while playing gongs and, you know, what have you. How extraordinary. Yeah. They had this Balinese music specialist came and visited and I think through Peter's contacts. And um, So he really did have a love of Indigenous music. Oh, yeah. From lots of different cultures. Yeah, yeah. That's so special. He wrote some – he told a good story. He wrote uh, some music that was influenced by Japanese music, the gagaku, which is the court orchestra, only for the you know the, the emperor and so on to enjoy. And he went to Japan, he said, and on this trip uh, he met this guy who said, um, if you, uh, you know, I, I know um, how to get us in to hear the gagaku orchestra, um, if you would like to hear some of that, the real thing. And he mm. said, oh, yes, please. He said, "All right, well, we'll it's a it, you know a bit of a drive, but we'll we'll go on Sunday or something." So anyway, it was a heat wave, and um, Peter was wearing like you know a, a short a shorts and a shirt and looked a bit daggy, and it got very very hot in the car, <laughs> and so he was sweaty and filthy and everything, and they were heading off, and then the guy said, "My friend um, has the orchestra, you know," and uh, they they were coming towards this mansion like this palace. Yeah. And Peter said, who's your friend? And he said, the emperor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he's arriving and this he's big arriving sweaty looking mess. Like, looking like a pile looking of Looking like a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that good? Oh, that's fantastic. So moving into what was really the beginning of your career, what was your first gig out of university? I don't think it's even on my CV. The first thing I did uh, was uh, a, a show at the Q Theatre, which was at Penrith, and this was a show, The Audition, it was called. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And it was written by this English guy, young English guy, and he and his girlfriend had done it in the West End. They came to Australia to do this show and they needed the third person to play. It was a show about people auditioning a musical that they'd written. Right. And so... They had written it and they were doing the songs. And so life, they, life imitating art. Yeah, and yeah. I had to play the pianist who had written the score. Okay. And um, down the back of the theatre was a man playing the producer who called out all these terrible things. And I got a laugh. I remember distinctly. <gasps> you remember your first laugh on stage. Yeah, because I ad-libbed. Oh. I see. And Alan Tobin, who was the lovely old actor who played the guy up the back, came up to me afterwards and said, oh, did you put that line in? He said, best thing in it. <laughs> <laughs> and Phil Scott 
was born. <laughs> We're going to talk about so many incredible moments in your career. And I would like to start with, uh, in the 80s, you were the musical director for the Rocky Horror Show at the Theatre Royal Sydney and the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne. That's right. Yes. So this was the first revival of Rocky Horror after the initial very successful season with Reg Livermore and Sal Shira and mm-hmm. those people. Yep. And um, a man named Wilton Morley was the producer who was the son of Robert Morley, the English actor. And we had the same designer, Brian Thompson, who I've been friends with ever since. Mm-hmm. And uh, they brought out an Englishman named Daniel Abeneri to play Frankenfurter and he was like a dead spitting image of Tim Curry. Oh, So it wasn't wow. like Reg at all. It wasn't mm. like the Australianism mm. that, that he brought to it. Um, we had a playwright named Steve J. Spears who was very successful at the time, played Eddie and Dr. Scott, but he dropped out and a man named Ignatius Jones came into the role uh-huh. who was another pop star. He'd been in a band called Jimmy and the Boys and Ignatius was gay and Ignatius asked Stuart – um, how many gay people are in the company? And Stuart said, well, now that you're here, two and a half. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was married at the time. <laughs> ah, we're going to get to that. Ah, well, I mean, that says it all really, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yes, um, I'll just uh, – Rocky was a really good learning experience for me because I hadn't actually led a band like that before. There weren't. A, it wasn't a big band. It's only quite a small sort of rock-sized ensemble in those days. I think it might be bigger now. But it was quite tricky because you couldn't see what was going on on stage and they didn't have a video of it either. Mm. You just had to listen, mm. which was fairly tricky. Um, anyway, I, I stayed with it, um, but I left after Melbourne because I had other things to do. And what and, were they? Oh, well, I'd written a musical and the Q Theatre wanted to put it on. And what was the musical? It was called Safety in Numbers, which was written by me and Luke Hardy, a four-hander. Um, I'll get back to that. But anyway, okay. Wilton said um, the the production eventually of Rocky was going to New Zealand and he wasn't entirely confident in the New Zealand musical director, mm-hmm. he said. So would I go over for the rehearsal period and supervise? Interesting. Yeah. And he said, also, um, we've got a, a, a very popular local pub rocker from New Zealand named Russ LaRock, who's going to play Eddie and Dr. Scott, but we have to use his band in the pit. And I said, well, Wilton, this is a show. This isn't a pub gig. You know, mm. What if they can't read? You know, they're accused. It's the whole thing is, uh, he said, oh, no, apparently they're fabulous. And I said, it's all right, okay. <laughs> anyway... <clears throat> So I went over there and I didn't audition them because I already had the job, but luckily they were all right, particularly the guitarist who was terrific. And Russell Rock, of course, turned out to be Russell Crowe, <gasps> who uh, had left Australia and gone to New Zealand, was doing pub rock there under that name. Wow, my mind is blown. Yeah, and he was very good. And he stayed with the production and went back to Australia and he came back with it and eventually ended up playing Frankenfurter and then, you know, started making films and that's – that's the story. Wow. But I remember um, a few years later when I was at the Edinburgh Fringe, the film festival's on at the same time and Romper Stomper was oh, in it. Yes. And there was that big poster of him as the as the skinhead and mm-hmm. I looked up and thought, well, I know him. That's <laughs> Russell Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Look how far he's come. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Phil, what a great story. So you've, you've – you're you're a composer. You're a writer. You've tell me tell me about the the earliest piece that you composed. You mentioned that you you left Rocky Horror, and that was because you had written a musical. Yes, uh, I went to London. Um, uh, I actually went on a big overseas trip mm-hmm. in um, seventy nine eighty. So actually, that was this was before Rocky because Rocky was eighty one, I think. Mm-hmm. But while I was away. Um, a friend of mine I met up with in London, a guy named Luke Hardy, who is actually mainly a photographer these days. And uh, we thought, let's write a show. And we just did, you know, we just started doing it. And it was unfinished. And when um, I was doing Rocky, he came back to Australia and we finished it. And we put it into the Q Theatre at Penrith mm-hmm. and they said they wanted to do it. So that's why I left the Rocky Horror Show because I had my – own piece to do, and it was of called course. Safety in Numbers, a four-hander about four people 
of various ages, but mostly young, living in a share house in Glebe, which I set to a high E, Glebe, <laughs> in the opening number. <laughs> and a man named Arthur Dix, who used to work there as a director and designer, he was the director, and we used to say Arthur Dix is better than none. And <laughs> Anyway, and the cast the cast was wonderful. Um, the cast, there were two men and two girls. So um, the, the the boys were um, a guy named Frank Garfield who uh, already you know had been more or less established, and I'd played for some auditions for him, and he was cast as the older sort of guy, and a young fellow named Simon Burke played the boy. Mum. And this was mum did it, and it was before Les Mis, before any of those things. The first musical he ever did on stage. Wow. And the two girls were Mariette Rupps, who was one of the Evitas in Evita. Wow. And she was, like, fabulous, Mm -hmm. of course. And lovely Robin Arthur, who is one of my dearest friends and who later played Mrs Potts in Beauty and the Beast and she was in Les Mis as Madame Thenardier originally in Australia, you know, all that stuff. So it was a really good cast. And – and what happened? Oh, well, we it was quite successful there. I we we rushed writing the end of it um, because that's when we started to get this vibe that they were going to take it, and it wasn't quite finished. And I think the ending doesn't work very well. So <clears throat> you know, there's there's always problems writing a musical. Really hard for anyone that knows Phil Scott. This fact might sound wild. But church fellowship changed your life. Oh, that's right, it did indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know the monkey song, I'm a believer. I wasn't a believer. I'm still not. (laughs) But it was like a social occasion um, when I was in sort of late years of high school. Um, A a bunch of cool kids went to this church fellowship. We had a really excellent minister. I think it was Presbyterian. I don't know. It was whatever it was. Irrelevant. You were there for the fun. I was there for the fun, and that's where I met um, a number of people, including uh, my, you know, wife, who I would marry yes. down the track. Yes, Lorna. Lorna. I met her. Her brother was um, one of the people who ran the thing, and they did shows there. They did a, a dramatic version of Catch-22, <laughs> and they did um, a version of Sweeney Todd, not the Sondheim because that hadn't been written, but the melodrama one, Blood and Guts. Okay. And um, I also uh, met uh, a friend of Chris's named Doug Mulray, who later became a very well-known um, morning, morning show radio guy. Yes, yeah. Doug Mulray in the 80s, yes. Triple M. Dougie Do. I remember him well. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, through him I met a man named Ted Robinson, uh, who Doug worked with Double J because they both started there. Mm-hmm. And Ted was a producer who uh, was also worked in television. So you met you met some some figures and some people who were formative in basically the the, the rest of the history of you and performing. Oh, well, that's absolutely right. Because I also met Patrick Cook that way through um, Lorna's brother. Okay, they went to school together, and Patrick Cook was the a political cartoonist in the Bulletin, Sydney Morning Herald, and so on. Uh, one of the greats. And we just clicked. Mm-hmm. And um, down a little down the track after that, um, Patrick was writing a script for Max Gillies to do. Okay. And uh, where Max wanted to play various um, – Satirical politicians. Yes, Bob Hawke particularly, but, but several others as well. And can, I remember- we, can we meet Bob? <laughs> Can we hear well, Bob? Well, uh, you know, I'm just doing an impression of uh, Max's uh, impression. <laughs> <laughs> I was pulling my earlobe then if, for those who couldn't see. <clears throat> and so what happened next after you met all of these fellas? Well, I, I did a show uh, with Max Gillies called uh, A Night of uh, uh, National uh, Reconciliation at Kinsella's, and it, uh, it ran for nine months and it was sold out every night, Monday to Saturday. I couldn't even get tickets for a friend on a Monday. My goodness, nine months of a run, six nights a week. It was – Think about that, Sydney. It, it Imagine that absolutely, happening now. yeah. Well, not that kind of a show, I don't think. But obviously the ABC got interested and so Max 
was offered a, a contract to do a series mm. of these political caricatures and comedy which, sketches and stuff. Which then became the? The Gillies Report. Mm-hmm. It did. 1984, that was. And I uh, was going to go with him to Melbourne to make this show and Ted Robinson, who I'd met anyway through Doug, uh, was going to direct and Patrick was going to be the chief writer and I was going to be the other writer. (laughs) (laughs) The other one. (laughs) But no one told me, my agent certainly didn't, um, uh, uh, Jane Cameron at the time, that there were other people in it as well. Oh. But it makes sense when you think, you know, that they wanted to put established Melbourne people in it. Of so it would have a national interest. Uh, and so when I got there, I realised it wasn't the show with Max and me and me and me and me. <laughs> <laughs> but there were two girls in it, Tracy Harvey and Wendy Harmer. Oh, of course. And, and at first I thought, oh, well, listen, Wendy must be the choreographer or something. <laughs> No. Oh, Philip. Well, you know, we were in our little worlds and mine wasn't Melbourne, but I soon was made aware of who she was. She Indeed. was very well established on the scene there. And uh, and Tracy was too. And the other man was John Clark. Oh, wow. And so the writing team was, when I was the total newbie, was me, Patrick, uh, John Clark and Don Watson, the historian and you know book writer and wonderful writer. He, Don was... Um, a friend of Max's, and he concentrated mostly on the Bob Hawke stuff. Mm-hmm. I did mostly lyrics with Patrick, but also worked on him and with other pieces of his ideas. And Clark did his own thing. Uh, but, you know, we crossed over a certain amount. And I learned a whole lot. What, what was it like working with John Clark? Well, he was very, very intelligent, extremely funny. He saw the funny side of everything. Uh, in that dry way that he had, he was, and he was a very, very supportive, and very positive energy sort of man too. Uh, you couldn't help liking him. He was easy to work with because of that too. You know, no um, fights and egos clashing and all that stuff. None of that. He wasn't interested in that. And what happened when you took him a song of yours one day uh, that you'd yes. written? <laughs> I've told you this story. Um, well, no, it was a very good lesson and I took it on into lots of other work that I did later. Um, I, I'd written something uh, and I submitted it and we were all sitting around a table talking about what was in the show. And he said, look, this is – it's good, but it's, it's, it's overwritten. It's too long. You're going to have to cut some out. <gasps> uh, and I said, well – do I really have to? I mean, I you know. I, no, I don't I, want to. I, 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 tried I don't to want to kill a, my babies. <laughs> think of a rational way of saying I love every bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, look, there's only two kinds of people who refuse to have their, their writing cut. They're either a genius or an amateur. So which one are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I, neither of those. And he said, Good. Okay, so I reckon that could go and that could go <laughs> and then we went ahead. And was he right? Oh, yeah, of course he was, yeah, particularly in television where there's such stringent time limits. But any time, you know, we, every time you write a first draft of anything, you write too much because all your ideas are pouring into it straight away and then you've got to be able to look at it and go, that's not necessary, I've said that twice, whatever it is, you know, and, and cut. So that was the Gillies Report in Melbourne. Yep. And from there... You went on to the big gig and some other incredible artists joined that company, including Gene Kitson. Yes. And it was basically, apart from, um, I mean, Gene was a, a regular on it, but uh, there were lots of guests, but it was basically the same people as the Gillies Report in a way, because Patrick was the writer I was on it. Um, Wendy Harmer hosted it. Uh, Clark didn't have anything to do with it, but that was um, Ted Robinson again, of course, he did all the comedy in those days. And what was the structure of the big gig? What what type of show was it? Well, yes, I mean, these days you say the big gig and young people don't know what you're talking about, which is just awful. It was a live show that went Uncultured live Uncultured swine. Oh, well, they just have no way of knowing, I guess. But the it was a a show of comedy pieces and bits that of the Melbourne comedy scene was thriving then. I mean, it normally is anyway, but it was at a, at a high point at that point time. And so people did their shtick. There were bands as well, um, you know, the um, the Bull Sisters, people like that. The Doug Anthony All-Stars, of course, as well. Of course. And people like Peter Rosethorne and Jim Owen and Anthony Aykroyd and Glyn Nicholas, 
and uh, several others who are uh, well, fabulous, whose names escape me at the moment. But all, all artists who have gone on to have huge oh, yeah. careers, huge careers in Australia and beyond. Uh, so it was the big gig was a, a sketch variety show. Yeah. The audience were standing on the floor with the cameras in, the, in amongst them, on the, the, those big cameras on wheels. Mm-hmm. They just had to get out of the way because the cameras <laughs> moved around and there were stages set up around the studio where something would be performed and then the cameras would swing around and – pick up, say, the Doug Anthony's that were ready to do their number over there. And there were a few inserts, uh, pre-recorded videos that we put in just to cover moments where the cameras needed to reposition, but they they weren't a big part of it. And that's when uh, Jean did the news reader character, um, Veronica Glenn Huntley, doing the news. <laughs> uh, and I followed as the weatherman Clinton Funt. I had to do a weather report each, each week. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you about two of them. One of them, because we had to have some kind of gag each time and had to be different. And one day I was stupid enough to say, oh, I should do it in the nude. <laughs> well, of course, Ted jumped on that idea. <laughs> so we got wardrobe to get the world's longest tie. <laughs> <laughs> and the other time uh, they said, well, what are we going to do? We can't just do, you know, a funny weather again. We've got to have another individual idea for this one, specific idea. And uh, – I said, well, how about all the – like we have all this extreme weather and it all happens to me while I'm saying it. <laughs> well, little did I know that when we went to film it, there was a tidal wave or something in it somewhere. <laughs> all these people in the studio, I'd never seen half of them in my life, all holding buckets of water. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, this all went out live. The big gig was shot and filmed and, and you know, broadcast live. It was broadcast live on a Monday night. Um, once there was one actor, a man named Mr. Pee who was a <laughs> magician who like juggled and he went for about 10 minutes. He was only supposed to do three minutes, but he went for 10 minutes. He dropped balls, picked them up and said, oh, sorry about that. No, 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 no. And then at the end he said, oh, you can get rid of all that in the editing cut. Oh, no. <laughs> Realise it was live. Ted was up in the, you know, the producer's box up the top going, why is he still on? (laughs) I can just see that. Oh, gosh. And so after the big gig came really the biggest gig, Good News Week. Yes, I wasn't a part of that when it was at the ABC. It was on for quite a long time before I joined. But when they went to Channel 10 in um, 99, uh, they, they needed lower brow humour, so they, they brought needed, you in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no point in me telling <laughs> this story, is it? <laughs> they needed comedy for the, for the everyday man. <laughs> yeah. No, they just needed more writers because they were doing twice as many shows. They did two a week. That's why. Two a week. Yes. That's huge. It is a lot. Mm. But we were there all week writing, so it was a, a, a day job. You know, come in at nine o'clock, read the papers, um, the head writer uh, would say, okay, uh, these stories are the ones I want to uh, do. Um, and again, I want 10 gags from each of you about each of these four stories. And then when we'd done our 10 gags, we could go home unless there was a, a camera rehearsal at the at the studio at Channel 10 and then we'd go in and we would be Mikey Robbins and Julie McCrossan and whoever the guests were. So the cameras could, you know, get us right and Paul – course did it as well and Flacco and the Sandman would do their bit they were from big gig days too uh yeah so uh, the the uh, a good news week was much more of a kind of a writing gig I guess sure uh, I didn't do any music on it at all and I wasn't in it the one that I was in which I really liked was the dingo principle which was 87 and that's the first time I worked with Jonathan Biggins and Drew Forsyth Ah. I mean, I'd known Drew for ages and we had done a, sh- a show together, a live show. What was that called? That was called Let Yourself Go, but nobody did. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a sort of review that in a room that lasted like two shows. Oh, what a shame. Ask um, Geraldine Turner about that one. I shall, I it was, shall. It was called Upstairs, the room. Okay. okay she's got a story about hers. So during the Dingo Principle, you already knew Drew Forsyth, but you met Jonathan Biggins and from there something miraculous happened. And when I say miraculous, I mean that for 
all of the audiences in Australia because the three of you formed the Wharf Review, which has gone on to become a part of Australian theatre fabric. You, you, 23 years later, the Wharf Review is still touring every year. Tell me how that came about. Well, we were all in the Dingo Principal show and also with some other people too, Antonia Murphy and Denny Gordon were in it and Patrick was in it. Um, and then we went on to do another show about politics in 1990 and that was of, with Ted Robinson on the ABC and with Andrew Denton fronting that one and it was called The Party Machine. It was leading up to the election in six weeks' time well, the election suddenly was called early and we only did three episodes instead of six. <laughs> so we, Drew and Jonathan and I found ourselves with nothing to do and we said, why don't we put a show together? We enjoy working together. Let's do that and we can do it at the Tilbury Hotel, which was a place where friends of mine like Gary Scale and Brett Murphy were doing silly comedy shows, right? And <clears throat> so we did and that's when Three Men and the Baby Grand started, which was the first of those shows for us. That was a fantastic show. Yeah. What was the Tilbury like back in the day? Well, it was like Kinsella's a bit in the 80s, became what the Tilbury was in the 90s. It was the place to go and see something really fresh and funny and stupid in the case of the Tilbury. And we did a number of shows there, but uh, Three Men and the Baby Grand was the most popular. And it again, it just sold out and there were people sitting around the walls and all that sort of thing. It was absolutely packed, illegally packed. <laughs> and that uh, became such a hit that we did it in Adelaide and we did it, uh, I think we did it in Melbourne, but nothing from Sydney really takes off in Melbourne is a rule, but mm. still, we did all right. But uh, we um, had a fabulous uh, season in Newcastle <laughs> in the Hunter Theatre where we raised enough money to take ourselves to the Edinburgh Festival. So we went to Edinburgh with the show. Wonderful. And after that, uh, Ted decided he'd make a television series of Three Men and the Baby Grand. And so that's uh, that happened. That was the last, I think, of the major series that I made at the ABC. Okay. So while you were in Edinburgh playing Three Men and a Baby Grand, you also accompanied a very, very famous golden girl, B. Arthur. How the hell did that happen? Well, she was the uh, guest of the festival that year. The Golden Girls had just wound up. I think it was 1992. And um, <clears throat> uh, she had to do an appearance. She had to make an appearance at this one-off concert. It was in a circus tent for some reason. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she was going to sing a number and read an extract from My Gorgeous Life by Dame Edna Everidge, oh. <laughs> which, <laughs> she, which she read in her own voice and it was hilarious. <laughs> anyway, um, she was going to sing a song and so she needed the piano player and um, the Edinburgh Festival fringe people knew that I was in town doing two shows and you could you could play a tune yeah, on the piano, yeah. yes. So uh, they said, "Think we've found some someone," and I said, "Yes, I'll do it." So uh, I had to go and rehearse with her in the morning of the of the gig at her very palatial hotel, not of like course. the dump I was staying in. Oh, the dump they were putting her in to play it, but yeah. <laughs> oh well, it was a tent, <laughs> you know, tent show, and um, uh, you know, I was a little bit kind of thing. She's quite um, tall and you know, a bit sort of. And very famous. Oh, very, very famous, yeah. I happen to know that she was in the Thrippany Opera with Lottie Lenya and all this other stuff that, you know, people may not know. So what happened? You rock well, up to okay. B. Arthur's place in the palatial yeah, room. And, and we had to rehearse in the ballroom, which had this like 800 feet long piano and and she came down. She looked elegant and gorgeous and it was first thing in the morning. And uh, she wanted to sing I'll Be Seeing You in all the old familiar places and the mm -hmm. wartime hit. Vera Lynn and various mm. other people, which I knew. And so I said, what key do you sing it in? And she said, well, I don't know. What key would you do it in? And I said, well, I'll do it in C, <laughs> <laughs> which I would anyway. But right. you know, I thought, you know, make it easy for the pianist or white keys. Of course. So we started, <clears throat> I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places and then she started crying and said, stop, stop. We'll start over. So I played 
court again and she started again. We didn't even get that far and she teared up and stop, stop, stop. And uh, so, you know, we took a moment and then we had a third go at it and we went all the way through and it was fine. And I didn't, you know, I just thought, oh, okay. You know, early mornings, probably hungover. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, I, I wanted to ask her about Lottie Lenya and about, um, you know, being in MAME with um, Angela Lansbury and all that. Mm. But I was too shy, to be quite honest. You know, that's, I'm a very, very shy person. Uh, so anyway, we were we were um, dressing in a caravan outside the circus tent, and that's where all the other acts were too. And B was on last, and there were a number of people coming through who were in the festival. And the second last person on the act on the night um, came in to dress, and it was um, Mark Trevorrow as Bob Down. Of course, and of course, the, he clapped eyes on it. Went, oh, it's B. Arthur. Oh, what was Angela Lansbury like? And you work with Lottie Lanya. What was she like? <laughs> so I got to hear all about it anyway. <laughs> Good on you, Mark. <laughs> so anyway, then we went on to do the song, and she was very nervous, and she had a, a PA there who had a, a tray with shot glasses of vodka on it, and she had a couple of those before she went on. And just as we were about to go out, she said to me. That key was fine for this morning, but now needs to be up a half tone. And on she went. And I thought, oh, what? D, D flat. All right. Then, yeah. Okay. Then it Figuring goes it sort out of, in your head yeah, before yeah. you get on stage. And anyway, and we, she just had to walk out there and she got a standing ovation. They just loved her so of much. And she did the, the Barry Humphreys reading first, which was so funny. And then we did the song. And, you know, I mean, I might have buggered up a couple of the chords in the middle eight, but, you know, we've. Started and finished together. That's the important thing. And then we came off and, you know, it was all, thank you very much. And I thought, if I don't ask her now, I'll never find out. So I said, um, uh, B, <laughs> I said, uh, this morning when we were like going through the number and uh, you, um, you know, you, we, you, we had to stop a few times. So, uh, what was that about? It was obviously very personal for you. She said, oh, yes, yes, Phil, well, um, yeah. Every time I hear that song, especially this morning when I heard that song, I thought it, ma it made me think of a certain person who I just wish was here with us today, my regular accompanist. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps I didn't do it as well as I thought. <laughs> so tell me about what it was like at Kinsella's in the 80s. What was that venue like? I've got two good stories about Kinsella's if, in terms of name dropping. So uh, this is back now in the 80s, Max Gilly's Night of National Reconciliation. And Max played a series of characters, quite you know reasonable 15-minute monologues, quite long pieces. Uh, but he had to change costumes and there was a few with prosthetics and props and things. So I needed to do songs in between his major changes. And so I wrote one song as Peter Allen and played him. I had a Hawaiian shirt tied at the waist, which <laughs> you've seen my waist. You can imagine how ugly that looked, and <laughs> uh, which was called My Heart's in Australia, but I work in LA. Do you remember any of it? Oh, uh, yeah. It was because he just had a hit with I Still Call Australia Home. The unofficial Australian anthem. Oh, uh, well, okay. Oh, God, how'd it go? So it went... Um, I was born in a small town way down on the coast and that's still the place that I cherish the most. Used to get cross-eyed like that during it. <laughs> Life was so easy, the people so kind. I often say, why did I leave it behind? And blah, 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 blah. And it was all about how much I love Australia. Cause my heart's in Australia, but I work in L.A. <laughs> and I sang another song in it that was about Tasmania that went, was like a calypso number that went, Taz, Tasmania, calls from across the sea. Oi. Taz, Tasmania, that's where I want to be. And it was all about how everyone marries their sister down there and they've all got pointy heads and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so 
so what happened this night that you were performing that song by Peter Allen? Oh, the Peter Allen one, yeah. Well, he was in. What? He came to the show. You're joking. Well, everyone came to it. It was one of those shows. And one night he was there. But I didn't realise. No one told me about it. The stage manager, my friend um, Michelle, I think, you know, kept stum about it. Of course. But we all went to eat afterwards. There was a restaurant downstairs. We were at a, a table with the, the, you know, the cast and crew of the show and there are various other people around and there was a table behind us that was empty and it filled up and suddenly the noise level dropped because all these people had seen the show and having late supper. And I realised, or someone might have whispered in my ear, that Peter Allen was sitting behind me, (gasps) directly behind. Our backs were touching. Did you talk to him? No. What happened? I left. (laughs) (laughs) And I never talked to him, ever. Oh, Uh, Which is such a shame. He was... Uh, he used to go to parties at Stuart Campbell's and I could have, you know, gone and met him, but I didn't. Anyway, there we go. Oh, wow. What a story. My other story about Kinsella's, everyone used to always congregate on the mezzanine bar and one night it was extremely busy and all a whole lot of shows and show people. And uh, my friend James Thane was there, who uh, later was an agent, and James was with this little English fellow and introduced me and I'd sort of, name went in one ear and out the other. And uh, he was a producer or something, and he said, "Oh, well, we're doing Little Shop of Horrors, and uh, are you an actor? You'd be absolutely marvellous in the title role." And I said, <laughs> "Wouldn't I?" But I said, um, "No, I'm. Well, I am. Uh, yes, I, I am an actor, but uh, I'm. I'm here. I've got a residency here, and I'm. You know, I think it will clash. And so, but thank you very much." And he said, "Oh, well, what a pity!" And blah blah blah, and walked away and blah blah blah. And later, I said to James. Who was that man? And he said, oh, you mean Cameron McIntosh? No. <laughs> Which, and it was before he did all those huge shows. No one had ever heard of him. <gasps> you turned down, uh, Cam yeah, Mac. I, I told Cameron McIntosh <laughs> to go and take a powder, you know. <laughs> you Never worked for him ever again, of course, as you can imagine. <laughs> oh, wow. So back to the Wharf Review. Oh, well, now, now we're jumping ahead. But um, after – we did the Tilbury and went to the Edinburgh Festival. We made that series. Uh, we were a team by then for Three Men and the Baby Grand. And we decided to do some more shows at the Tilbury. And one of them went, uh, in fact, it was Jonathan, me and Linda. So John, uh, Drew was doing something else. He was in great demand always as an actor before and after all this stuff. And... Uh, we did uh, – that was a show called Abroad with Two Men and we did it in Brisbane where Robin Nevin was running the Queensland Theatre Company at the time and she – I'd worked with her in the 80s as well or 70s even I think it was but she was a great friend of Linda's and so she came to see our one performance in Brisbane and she spoke to us afterwards and said, I love Review, I've always loved that form and she said, "I, I this isn't – out there at the moment, but I'm going to be taking over Sydney Theatre Company next year and I would like you to do a late-night review on the set of whatever play is on in Wharf 1 at 10 o'clock on like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so we, that's that's when it started. In the year 2000, we did our first one, The End of the Wharf as We Know It, it was called. <laughs> How fabulous. <laughs> yeah. And it was just silly stuff. Like we played the um, animals who were rejected from the uh, Olympic you know, um, insignia. So th- there was a mole or something and a, and a blowfly and various other Australian animals that we were really pissed off that we weren't used for the Olympics. We had stuff like that in it. So Robin uh, spoke to us at, towards the end of that year and said, I want to put you in Wharf 2 and give you a proper 8 o'clock time slot and I want you to do all of the reviews. She also said, and this is, you know, this was as good advice as I got years ago from John Clark. Robin Nevin said, and make it more political. Make it about politics, she said, because that's what I like. And also, you'll keep it'll keep generating material for you. Of course. You. And she was so right. And it would Wasn't never, ever? ever have lasted that long if we hadn't gone with that advice. You're a novelist, you're a writer, you're a composer, you're a reviewer, you're also a script consultant. And one of the best gigs that I believe you have had was when you were flown to New York to be a consultant on Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical that was being produced by none other than Beth uh, Midler. 
Yes. Well, I had worked on the Sydney production. Uh, the, the director, Simon Phillips, asked me to um, work on the script when they made changes, put jokes in and various things. And uh, so I had the great pleasure of being taken first to London after that, but then to New York. And, I, you know, I didn't know Bette Midler had anything to do with it, really. I turned up and Simon said uh, – Oh, you've got to come in tonight. The the main producer's in. She wants wants to talk to us at interval. So I went in. I only saw the first half of that version, um, and we'd made certain changes. And one of them was uh, the references that Felicia makes to Kylie Minogue, big Kylie fan, obsessive. Um, the Americans decided they didn't know who that was, so they we made it Madonna. Okay. Okay. Although I would think they would know, but still, shame on them. Uh, yes. Anyway, became Madonna. So I wrote a joke about Madonna. I had um, Felicia say, uh, Madonna's an icon. And then Bernadette, Tony Sheldon's character, says, yeah, so is Mount Rushmore. But Mount <laughs> Rushmore's a better actor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, we're having this meeting and there's Beth Midler, along with, you know, all the creative team of the show. And the first thing she says is, I'm not so sure about that Mount Rushmore gag. What do you think of it? To me. <laughs> no, not a peep out of anyone else because they course. all knew I'd written it. And I said, well, um, I think it's hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> and she got that big grin on her face and it stayed in until the Australians went and then she got Bruce Valanche to rewrite tons of the show. Ah, really. And Bruce Valanche, of course, was the writer of all of her Sophie Tucker jokes back in the day when she was touring. Oh, and he, you know, he's written gags for the Oscars and everything, and he's a fantastic gag writer. He is. But anyway, it's up to her. She was the main producer. Of course, it's her, you know, her call. Well, what was it like to meet Bette Midler? Oh, what was it like to meet Bette Midler? It was terrifying. (laughs) Oh, why? Why was it terrifying? Oh, well, because uh, first of all, I didn't know it was going to be her. And, you know, and I've been a fan of hers since, I, well, since her first albums came out. That's when we first heard about her. And I saw her at the State Theatre in 79 when she came out here the first time, you know. And I know, I've just been a huge fan forever. And I've even sung some of her songs in cabaret and things, and, you know, even me. <laughs> and I don't sort of channel her because she's not a fat bald man. Well... <laughs> Well, I remember seeing one of your shows upstairs at Claire's Kitchen on Oxford Street and you sang a really obscure song of Bette Midler's that uh, we were there with with, uh, Anne and Ted and Cam and I were watching the show and and Ted turns to me and he said, what was that song of Bette's that Phil just sang? I've never heard it before. And what was that number? Oh, to have you walking so near. What's it called? Um, uh, um, uh, Let me follow behind. Follow behind it's called. It's it's like the last track on side two of one of those albums. It's mm. one of the obscure tracks. But I sang it in um, a show that I did downstairs at the State Theatre um, and we went back to Trevor's place afterwards. He was in and a bunch of other friends and uh, some people joined us who hadn't seen the show and Trevor said, uh, do, do some songs. You missed the show. It was fabulous. Blah, blah. Do, do some songs. So I sang that one and one of them was Ross Coleman who was this wonderful Australian choreographer who choreographed Priscilla and a million other things. Um, And Ross was in tears. He said, that's my favourite song. It's always been a huge favourite. He said, nobody ever sings it. No one knows it. I said, well, I know it. I sing it. (laughs) I'm a real fan. I'm a true fan. You are one of the most generous artists that I've ever had the pleasure of working with and I know a lot of young artists in the, coming into the industry who are interested in musical writing and composing are very grateful to have your experience shared with them through the Show Lab Music Theatre Assessment Panel at the Hayes Theatre, which I know you really love. You're, you're really passionate about that work. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I was so chuffed to be invited to be part of that panel. Um, there are some, you know, really fabulous professional people who you would want to talk to about any project you were working on. Um, we've got uh, Neil Gooding, the producer, Catherine Thompson, fabulous writer who's done television and everything else, uh, Sean Rennie and Sheridan Harbridge, who, you know, I don't need to explain who <laughs> they are, uh, Ken Moralita as well. Um, and uh, we assess the, uh, the musicals that people are writing so they can be in a – 
not in a finished form. They might be uh, just even an idea and a couple of songs, but, you know, they can put it in. And we uh, are asked by the Hayes to suggest, you know, what uh, the next stage should be for these pieces, whether they should go to a workshop or get a dramaturg attached, or sometimes it's someone saying, I don't know any composers, but I want to have music written for my words. You know, it's all set. And they're not guaranteed a, a production, but... For example, um, Dubbo Championship Wrestling got one and it came through that process. And now it's just closed its first season to rave reviews. Yeah, well, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's just just, um, nice to be able to uh, use what I've learnt from all the experience. I mean, I haven't written, you know, a million Broadway shows or anything, but I know what the pitfalls are and, and so do all those other people in their fields. And so it's really invaluable, that advice, that group advice coming from us, I think. And it's a terrific group to be part of. And and I just love the Hayes anyway. I love what the Hayes does. I think the Hayes is the hot, the, um, certainly the hot music theatre place in Sydney. Supporting young established and, and uh, an emerging artist is incredibly important. And, of course, that's where we debuted our show 30-something in 2019. Which well, that's right. When I was talking about the young people, a, a good example is the – the fellows we've had and girls that we've had in the band mm. for our show. They're all in their 20s and they're just wonderful. They're wonderful and what they bring to it, um, apart from their professionalism and their musical ideas when they're improvising, is… Their energy. Their energy. Yeah. I know. It, it's so it's so good. It is. Um, um, 30-something is a show that we've done, obviously, that we've written and performed and in Adelaide and elsewhere, and it should have been done a lot more, but COVID came along and killed that a bit. Sure did. Um, but it's uh, one of my, the shows I've most enjoyed doing, I must say, in my cabaret career. I've enjoyed most of them, but this one is very special because it's you and also because there's a band, and I just think it's just got a very exciting vibe, that show, and I think it should go on even without me. And it'll be just as good. Yes. Well, for for everyone out there listening, um, it's a Tuesday night and Philip and I perform our final two performances possibly ever this weekend. And it's been an honour to work with you. I've known you for a decade. Yes, we have, yeah. And we've always wanted to work together, but of course, timing is everything. And when you were taking a break from the Wharf Review in 2019, you were still writing the show, but you were taking a break from performing. Yeah. You and I got together and wrote a little show, a little big show big called show, 30 it? Something. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's a little big show. And, um, and it uh, debuted at the Hayes in 2019, and we picked it up again this year. We debuted at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. We then went to Geelong and then we came back for Shoalhaven and Pado RSL last weekend. And now we've got our final two performances at Riverside Theatre, which will just be a very, very, very special weekend. That and sure it's will. been an incredibly special time working with you. I have learned so much from you as a person, as an artist, as a writer and um, I know that anyone out there who has the opportunity to work and learn from you is one very, very special individual, and it's a very, very special experience. Oh, I've got no comeback for that. It's oh, very lovely of you. Thank you. For the first time ever. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, goodness. I've enjoyed every second of it. And, of course, uh, in May of next year, you'll be retiring from performing. I'm going to, yes, yeah, step back from the long tours and the – the, you know, the nerves. I still get nervous. I still get tense. Why are you retiring? Why am I retiring? Mm. Well, uh, there's two reasons. One is that I'm just getting a little tired of the touring and the the tension that comes with opening nights and things like that. I'm finding it a little harder to deal with. I've always had it and most people do. Uh, if you don't have it, then something wrong, I think, mm. um, because it's also the excitement of performing. It's the other side of that, but it can be something you have to manage. And I'm just feeling like I've managed it for long enough. Sure. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I turned 70 in August. And, hip, hip, hooray! And, well, yeah, and, you know, 70 is the new 80. And <laughs> <laughs> 
And you think, well, you know, there's a certain amount of time left, but let's not kind of waste it. So I, there is, there's other things I want to do in my life than work, and I'm in a position to do that, which is amazing. So I think they're the reasons, really. Well, Philip Scott, it has been an absolute honour to speak with you this evening. You are a living legend, a dead set icon in Australian entertainment. You have been part of some of the most successful, longest running, important, hilarious work that Australians have seen on stage and screen. Thank you for your contribution to what has made us just laugh a lot. We've had such a good time watching you and listening to you. And um, I really hope that we're not it's not going to be the end of any performing next year, but enjoy your break when it happens. <laughs> okay. Well, they say never say never. Exactly. They and I'm going to bloody hold you to that, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Scott, thank you for being on the cafeteria this evening. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Kath. And that's it, my friends. Another episode of The Cafeteria. A huge thanks to this week's guest and my dear friend and colleague, Phil Scott. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Go on, give it five stars. Go on, share it with your friends. Help me get the word out. And guys, we're also on Instagram. You can follow us over there at The Cafeteria Podcast. I'll be back next week with more colourful characters, hilarity, amazing stories and entertainment. Have a wonderful week and see you soon. Listener.